You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 112 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today, our topic is caves. Caves. Caves, 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 caves. We're, this this is a real big, it's a deep topic. A deep, complex. Complex, <laughs> branching. <laughs> It, there's a lot to talk about with caves. I had I, I've put I had to consider lots of different avenues when putting this episode together. But we are going to be discussing caves, their what caves are, their formation and everything. We're going to discuss the biology and ecology of caves. Yeah, who lives in caves? Which is a very fun biological subject. And then of course we're going to do a little bit of history, evolution, and paleontology cave paleontology which is a whole thing yeah like that's a whole field of paleontology for some people caves are extremely important as resources natural resources paleontological resources and sources of biological study so this is a really exciting this this is going to be one of those episodes that's like we could spawn off several more episodes <laughs> like really just every five sentences or so could <laughs> <laughs> there are there are three to five other episodes within this episode <laughs> nesting dulled this episode topic was requested by janelle and kieran so thank you both very much. Good for request. This good request. I'm excited to dive, delve into it. Spelunk. I'm yep, excited yep. to spelunk into this topic. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into caves, a few announcements. First and foremost, we have a Patreon. Sure do. We, we have for years now, and we get so much support from our patrons. The donations from our patrons allow us to do the podcast, mm-hmm. not only to host it, but also to keep our equipment uh, up up to date and functional to try out new things. We've done some video stuff recently. We've gone traveling, you know, before the pandemic and everything. <laughs> and our patrons get goodies. They get bonus audios. They get director's notes these days after each episode. And if you become a patron at a certain level, we will thank you on the podcast. This episode, we would like to welcome and thank Jessica... JC, Althea, and Agnes. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy your Patreon perks. Yeah. And if you're not a patron, well, consider it. Yeah, man, maybe take a look-see. Patreon is one way for listeners to support the podcast, but it's not the only way. People, we get lots of feedback and comments and requests from people on email, on social media. We're on YouTube these days, and people can leave comments on there. And hey, we always appreciate rate ratings and reviews mm-hmm. on iTunes, which helps to sort of circulate and bring more attention to the podcast. And if nothing else, tell your friends that you like this podcast. Outside of that, no other major announcements. We do side projects every now and then. We recently came out with a new silver screen science about Godzilla versus Kong. It was fun. And we have more silver screen science and other bonus things planned for later in the year, but we're not going to talk about those just yet we'll make you wait a little bit it's too soon 
And with the announcements out of the way, let's move on to the news. News! Every episode before we get into our main topic, we like to talk about news from paleontology, evolution, and similar sciences. Will, would you like to report some news? I would like to talk about opposable thumbs on pterosaurs. That's not who usually has opposable thumbs. No, it's not. This is a new species of pterosaur that seems to have opposable thumbs on its wings, which is super bizarre. This is research by Xuanyu Zhou et al. in Current Biology, and the article is by Enrico de Lazaro in Sci News. So opposable thumbs typically are associated with arboreal life and are typically associated with mammals. Right. Now, when we say opposable thumbs, we mean a thumb that faces the other direction from your other fingers. Yeah, that so does that not you... bend with them, but against them. Right. So you can close your hand so that your fingers form a little hook, a, little, a loop, a uh, 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 grabber. Yes, a clasping hand. And so that's, it opposes the other fingers, therefore opposable thumb. Right. Primates have that. We have that. Yup. Chameleons have that. Yep, yep, yep. So those are the groups, a lot of the ones that you think of nowadays. There are some others that have semi or, you know, partially opposable kind of stuff, but mammals, it's more common. Chameleons have it, but really that it's very rare outside of mammals. Mm-hmm. You don't see it in many other reptiles and stuff. This pterosaur seems to have opposable thumbs. This is a newly discovered species called Cunpin Opterus antipolicatus, which was discovered in China and is estimated to be about 160 to 158 million years old, so Jurassic. To give you an idea of what kind of pterosaur we're looking at, it's a small-bodied, fairly petite, as far as pterosaurs go, uh, a more primitive, quote-unquote, has a longer tail, and wingspan is estimated to be roughly 85 centimeters or 33 inches, so just a little bit wider than a foot. Right, so this is more like Rampharynchus than like Pteranodon. Exactly. So think of those small, you know, the ones you see fluttering around in Walking with Dinosaurs. Right. Not the soaring ones up in the sky. This is a member of the Darwinopterans, which is a primitive subgroup of pterosaurs known from the Jurassic of China and Europe, named after Charles Darwin due to their transitional anatomy. Right. I think we talked about them briefly in episode 79 about pterosaurs. Yeah. Also Darwin episode 28. (laughs) This one has been nicknamed Monkey Dactyl. So I've heard. (laughs) (laughs) Which is very catchy because the specimens they have seem to have thumbs Now, they weren't able to recognize that right away because they were found in slabs and the fingers were actually embedded partially into the slab. Uh, Like within the sediment? Yeah, like in the rock. So they were actually hidden from external view. They were able to get a look at them using micro CT scanning, penetrate the rock with the scan and get a 3D view of the digits of this pterosaur. The future. Right? There are actually two specimens that were found. One which was associated with a couple of eggs, which they don't really discuss in this study, but hey, cool, new pterosaur with thumbs that also might have eggs. Yeah. So maybe cool future findings. Absolutely. Little baby monkey dactyls. Yeah. When they were able to create these digital models, they studied the forelimb and digits for the morphology and musculature to try to figure out how did the bones move according to each other. And it suggests a grasping hand with an opposing thumb, which also suggests an arboreal tree-living lifestyle. 
Yeah, we see two very, very versatile hands in, like we said, monkeys, primates, mm-hmm. but like squirrels, raccoons, some pandas, frogs, some frogs. Yeah, this is something you see, chameleons we mentioned, yep. very often for grabbing things to move yourself through the trees. Which makes sense because it was found in the Tiao Jishan formation in China, which is known to be a paleo forest. Uh, lots of lots of climbing space. So it it fits that it could have been living in the trees. There are actually other uh, genera of Darwinopteran pterosaurs known from here, uh, Darwinopterus and Wukongopterus. But it seems that they this new one occupied a different niche, a different role in the ecosystem. So likely was not competing with these other you know more closely related pterosaurs that it shared this habitat with. Neat. Now, not only is this notable just because it's cool, like it's a, a, a pterosaur of thumbs, which is awesome. This is the first known pterosaur to have an opposable thumb. Mm-hmm. It's the first one we've ever found and represents the earliest form of an opposable thumb in the fossil record that we know of. Oh, that's cool. This is the first opposable thumb that we've found <laughs> so far. Wow. So, yeah, a weird group to have it and... An old form of a grasping hand. This is fun. I mean, it makes total sense that pterosaurs would be arboreal. And these are animals who have wings, but also digits that are still usable, unlike, you know, birds or bats, which most of their digits are caught up in the wing. So it's not unreasonable. The first that the thing that this makes me think of now that I've never considered before, maybe others have is we've mentioned the other animals that have this kind of, you know, frogs, primates, raccoons, some some squirrels and things. And those are animals that don't just use their graspy hands for climbing, mm-hmm. but also for feeding. Yep. So now I have this image of a pterosaur doing like the raccoon thing, <laughs> like sitting on its haunches and holding like little bugs or little little tiny mammals and just chomping on them. Which now, paleo artists, if I, you haven't already, please draw, uh, p- please artistically render a little pterosaur sitting and feeding itself with its hands. I do believe the paleo art that is in the news article that we are linking to in the blog post has one grabbing a fruit or something off of a tree. Yes. <laughs> this is what I want. Well, and I love it because uh, I, in the Disney movie, The Good Dinosaur... Mm-hmm. Where it's supposed to be like, what if the dinosaurs didn't go extinct and then a a baby human became one's dog? It's a weird movie. Yep. But they kind of evolve, speculatively evolve a bunch of dinosaurs and they all are a bit smarter and stuff. But they also physically change some of them. And one of the things they do is they give the pteranodons graspy hands Ooh. out of their digits on the wings. And I remember noticing that. I was like, that's a neat concept. Well, here you go. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Well, hey, speaking, I mean, that news wasn't about diets, but we were talking about diets. So speaking (laughs) of diets, I've got a study here that explores the diet of the scimitar-toothed cat homotherium. Ooh. This is research by Larissa DeSantis et al. in the journal Current Biology. Is that where yours was just from? It's going to be a lot of current biology in this episode. It's very current biology. And we will link to a press release in Vanderbilt Research News by Marissa Shapiro. Homotherium is a scimitar-toothed cat. So uh, among the saber-toothed cats, Mm -hmm. the big felines that had the long teeth, compared with the more famous Smilodon, the saber-toothed cat, 
a quintessential example. Homotherium's teeth are a bit flatter and a bit shorter, but still doing the saber-toothed cat thing. Very common across the Pleistocene, found in the Americas, in Eurasia, and Africa. But as with so many ancient creatures, there are questions about its diet. Specifically, this study focuses on an assemblage of Homotherium preserved in Friesenhan Cave in Texas. A very famous fossil site, a cave site, uh, 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 it's topical, which preserves uh, several excellent specimens of Homotherium, as well as lots of remains of potential prey species, including a number of very young mammoths. And this has led to the hypothesis that this cave might have been being used as a den by these Homotherium, and if that's the case, were they eating baby mammoths? Oh! Because if so, that's pretty cool. That's a cool thing to know. So this study set out to see if they could find some support or, or contradiction. How could they shed light on this question? Mm-hmm. And they did so looking at two lines of inference, stable isotopes and dental microware. Stable isotopes means the chemical composition of the teeth, specifically certain isotopes of certain elements that can reflect diet. In this case, carbon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about this before on the podcast. If you eat certain foods, the chemistry of your food gets incorporated into your teeth. Certain plants, different plants have different chemical compositions of carbons, broadly grassland plants versus forest plants. Mm-hmm. Those get incorporated into the herbivores that eat them, and then that gets incorporated into the carnivores that eat the herbivores. It's the circle of life, but isotopically. This study found that Homotherium's uh, stable isotopes indicated a diet of C4 grazers, so grassland animals. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Larissa DeSantis, the lead author, is quoted in the press release as saying that the chemical composition in regard to the carbon isotopes is indistinguishable from the baby mammoths. (laughs) And also consistent with other grassland species like horses and bison. It is also consistent with the anatomy of Homotherium, which has been interpreted as more of a cursorial animal, so running or moving long distances... Mm -hmm which is what we see in a lot of open habitat grassland predators. Which contradicts what we typically see with Smilodon, which is usually more heavily built wrestler body. Yes, and indeed, Smilodon is interpreted, at least by some studies, to be a forest dweller, more closed habitat. Because that's come up in the news a couple of times. Yep. So that's very interesting. And then they also looked at dental microware, which looks at the pattern, the microscopic patterns of damage on teeth caused by eating. So that the patterns of how the teeth are wearing will be different depending on what kind of foods you're eating. And the microware, in comparison to other carnivores, suggests that Homotherium was not chewing on bones. Okay. As opposed to like lions and hyenas, which today do go after hard tissues, but going mostly, if not exclusively, for flesh, Mm -hmm. like cheetahs do today. But Homotherium's dentalware suggested both soft and tough fleshy foods. Okay. So not just like, I get that the really soft organs or whatnot, but also tougher soft tissues, 
which they suggest could include mammoth skin. Yeah, chewing through the hide. Exactly. So, altogether, this seems to suggest that, yeah, this may very well have been a homotherium den in this ancient cave, and seems to put forth a couple avenues of support that homotherium was going for baby mammoths, and, like you were getting at, means that homotherium was living a different lifestyle than Smilodon. Yeah. Which was is interpreted using similar evidence as a closed habitat hunter and a bone processor. Oh, that right. They were more like lions or hyenas that they may have been chewing on bones, whereas homotherium might have been avoiding bone in favor of softer tissues. One of the... F- Fascinating things that's suggested to me from this evidence is if they were indeed the ones that killed these baby mammoths and were feeding on them, if this was a den, that they were carrying them back. Yeah. Like, A, I mean, I I don't know how big these baby mammoths were, but assuming that they're kind of comparable to our today's pachyderms. Yeah, baby elephants. Baby elephants aren't small. They're not huge. Like, right. They are, they are a, you know, one, I could fit one in my bedroom pretty comfortably, but I don't know that I could deadlift one. No. Like, well, it, it I'd makes, have trouble. <laughs> it makes me think of, it, it instantly brings to mind the images, the videos I've seen of big cats, mm-hmm. like a leopard taking down an antelope and then just effortlessly taking up a tree, lifting it and carrying it up a tree. Yeah. And so that's, that was one of the first things that jumped out to me is, uh, we so often compare saber tooth cats with lions like that's always the popular comparison and lions kill and then eat at the kill mm. you know at least to my knowledge and if people know otherwise that if they carry it back to dens but from what i've always seen it's they kill and then eat at on the savannah you know where the kill fell now and so the fact that they're carrying it back to a den means they're an open environment hunter like lions but they're feeding differently yeah. Which is fascinating. I didn't notice any mention in the paper of e- evidence of young homotherium. Yeah. So, because it could also be that you're bringing food back for the family. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. If there's young in there. Uh, but I don't know if that's the case, if that's suspected to be the case here. Yeah. That's so interesting. Well, speaking of big ancient predators. Oh. My next news is about how many T-Rexes were there. <laughs> <laughs> inquiring minds want to know <laughs> no, this research literally said how how many t-rexes would you expect to be on the planet at a given time during the cretaceous during the time t-rexes were around and they aimed to answer that question cool yeah this is research by charles marshall et al in science and the article is by frida Krayer in nature news like the news page of nature so tyrannosaurus rex you may have heard of them. Once or twice. Once or twice or a dozen times. Famous big predatory dinosaur at the end of the Cretaceous. Prolific Hollywood career. This study wanted to know how numerous would they have been throughout their range, basically at any given moment during their time in the Cretaceous. Right. If you could go back to the late Cretaceous and survey the mm-hmm. living population of, t- you know, get in your helicopter and survey them or whatever... How many would there be? Exactly. So that's what they were looking for. Population density. The method they used is one used for modern taxa, you know, modern animals surveying their population density. But it uses body mass and geographic range to estimate the density. 
This is something known as Damoth's Law, which suggests that the average population density of a species decreases in a predictable way as body mass increases. The example they give in the article is there's fewer elephants than there are mice. Right. In the same area. You know, the same continent holds fewer of the big than they do of the small. Makes sense. So, that's what they looked at. They used estimates for the total range of Tyrannosaurus rex in North America. Right, based on fossil localities. Yeah, based on where we've found their remains. And then, based off the fossils, estimated their body mass. And then ran it through the system. And what it came up with is that at any one time during their reign in the Cretaceous, which they noted would have been about over the span of the two million years that T-Rex was walking around. The, The last two million years. At any given day, you could expect there to be 20,000 T-Rexes roaming around the planet, North America. Which they said would mean that in California, or an area the size of California, you would have just under 4,000 Tyrannosaurus. Huh. 3,800 T-Rex roaming around California, which would also mean that there would only be Two T-Rex in Washington, D.C. Right. <laughs> so it gives some perspective that in small areas you could have very few. Then, taking rough estimates for their lifespan, they calculated that there would have been, during those two million years, about 127,000 generations of T-Rex. Cool. Which means, overall, in the history of Earth, there have been... 2.5 billion T-Rexes, t- individuals, in Earth's history. That's a very cool number to know. Right? Wow. Now, this is where it gets interesting and that I didn't expect, but it brings up a very interesting point about what we do have. Mm-hmm. There are only 32 adult T-Rex specimens, give or take, Yep. that we have discovered today, which means our fossil record accounts for about one in every 80 million T-Rex that was around. Makes sense. Which really emphasizes how scarce the fossil record is for T-Rex. And says that if this is accurate, that T-Rex had a fairly large range and was a big dinosaur, but that for species with that were less widespread, there's a, based on these numbers, high chance they haven't fossilized at all. Yeah. That if they had a smaller range then it's likely we have no remains of them based on this math. Yeah, we, we find the remains of the abundant ones. Yep. So, And we've always known that preservation bias is, is a harsh mistress, <laughs> as the saying goes. Like, that the numbers we get in the fossils are a very, very small sample size of what was. This just really hammers at home. And this could be very promising for a, a way to interpret fossil populations. Uh Thomas Holtz was quoted, another paleontologist, and said that this is a very interesting, as he put it, uh, speculation that you know we always knew fossils were rare, but this could be a, a good way to put numbers to that rarity. Yeah, it helps sort of bring it home in a quantitative way. Exactly, we hadn't all we hadn't ever really put a percentage and you know rate numerically to it, but he does say that for this to really be reliable, he'd like to see the same study done on a modern population to confirm it, you know, a bit more, and to be done on a more numerous and 
common fossil population. Yeah. So this is interesting, but there needs to be some follow-up research to confirm that this is actually trustworthy. Yeah, and that is basically was my immediate thought. It was like, that's really cool. I wonder how many variables there yeah. are that... So for we talked uh, not too long ago about new research uh, supporting old research that Tyrannosaurus lived differently as a teenage T-Rex versus an adult T-Rex. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how that affects their distribution. Yep. And I wonder how much you have to account for available land. So like during the time that T-Rex was around, there was also a huge seaway carving North America in half episode 71. So I wonder how distribution of habitat can affect these estimates. And I wonder how ontogeny right the changing of lifestyle over the life of each individual t-rex can affect how they're distributed mm -hmm. i wonder if those dynamics were similar back then you know since t-rex appears to have been one of the few large predators in north america at the time based on the fossil record does that mean it could have had a greater distribution than we would expect in a modern ecosystem Many, many variables and questions. Well, and it, it, I think it also is uh, very fair to note that this is uh, a group that is fairly rare to discover. Uh, does that preservation, is that preservation common? You know, right. if we do this study with another group, will we see a similar 1 to 80 million, you know, ratio? Or will we find that, no, actually sauropods are, you know, 1 in 5 million, Right. You know, it's actually much more common or something. Yeah, I don't know. Like, well, it would it would be really cool to see a comparison between species that we expect to fossilize well mm -hmm. and species we expect not to fossilize well. Yeah. Like to do this kind of study with, you know, a small like a pterosaurs, which are very delicate and very small. And we expect them to be harder to fossilize. Or species in an environment that doesn't preserve quite as well. To see if it matches our expectations yep. in terms of that ratio. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, yeah, there's lots of follow-ups we could do to see if this is a usable technique on fossil populations. But so far, it, it is at least suggesting very interesting things for us to look into. Yeah, I'd love for this to be one of the first steps in the future uh, realm of paleontological global population studies yeah i would love for this just to become a a thing we start doing with fossil species as we get you know once we have enough numbers of them to to estimate the range then yep let's do it cool well hey speaking of population dynamics in north american extinct predators my yeah. next bit of research is about bears well done specifically dna from ancient bears even more specifically DNA from ancient bears that we didn't get from fossils of ancient bears. I, I'm I'm ready to learn. Excellent. This is research by Mikkel Winther Peterson et al. in Current Biology. Ah. And we're so current this time. <laughs> and we will link to an article in Science Alert by Michelle Starr. Environmental DNA. Oh, uh, okay. I get it. eDNA is the term for both the phenomenon and the you know, relates to the study of finding the DNA of the things that live in an ecosystem by just usually like scooping up some dirt mm -hmm. or scooping up some water because 
organisms that live in an environment are going to leave their DNA all over it. They're, you're shedding skin cells and hair, you're peeing and you're pooping, and just depositing DNA all over the place. And this is an indirect way to take samples of yes. a population of an ecosystem's DNA. Yes, and this has been done with modern animals. You know, we'll, we'll scoop a, a bit of soil and then get a sense of who lives in this ecosystem. Or like water from a lake is one of my favorite examples. Just yep. who's swimming in this pool? Uh, one of my favorites, and this is only slightly uh, the same thing, but there was a study several years ago that was pulling blood from leeches oh, yeah. to find out who was living in the area because the leeches were drinking their blood. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> oh, it was great. I'll talk more about that some other day. Uh, they collected the leeches by standing in the river for half an hour and just waiting. <laughs> it's That's the only animal that gives me the heebie-jeebies. So, environmental DNA has been a useful tool with modern creatures, but in fossils, there have been eDNA studies in fossils. In fact, another one of the news pieces that came out recently was about Neanderthal DNA from soil samples. But, according to this study... Fossil eDNA has mostly been limited to finding organeller DNA, mitochondrial or chloroplast DNA, not whole genomes, which means we're limited in how much we can learn. That information is good for saying who was here and what time period were they here, but less so for the broader context of comparing, you know, the kind of things we do with fossil-derived DNA of like, who are they related to? How, are, how were they uh, evolving alongside their relatives? Where did they come from? All that kind of cool DNA stuff. Yeah, what kind of genetic adaptations might they be building up? Yeah, hope they get genome, like whole genomes, nuclear DNA. This study presents the first full genome sequences derived from environmental ancient DNA. Cool. These come from sediment samples in Chiquihuite Cave. Uh, okay, I get it. In northern Mexico from about 14 to 16,000 years ago. This cave has lots of fossils of bears, bats, rodents, uh, more. There's also stone tools Ooh. in there, so evidence of human occupation at some point. The researchers scanned this sediment with powerful genetic sequencing techniques. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> to identify and compile genetic material into partial genomes from both black bear and giant short-faced bear. Nice. Which they were able to recognize from DNA uh, pulled from fossil remains elsewhere. Comparing it with genomes of both living and fossil groups, they were able to get a sense of how these... Bears they didn't find <laughs> were related to other populations. So, for example, the Mexican black bears were relatives of the living, ancestral relatives of the black bears we still have in North America today. Whereas the short-faced bears in that Mexican cave, compared with a Canadian population, were found to be strongly divergent. Okay. Not closely related, you know, sort of a deeper split between those two groups. These are some cool findings about bears, but more importantly, they demonstrate the ability to analyze genome-scale DNA from environmental DNA remains in sediments. This opens the door to be able to study population genetics, to study phylogenetic evidence, even in cases where you don't have direct fossil remains, 
or in cases where you want to get more than just your fossil remains. Which kind of suggests that any place, especially a cave, you know, a place where things are preserved quite well, where we find some fossils of a species that we can get DNA from, we could potentially then scan the sediment to find more DNA from that species. Well, and that's the the thing that's so exciting about eDNA is that when you go to a, a forest, there's lots of animals you're not going to see because they're either rare or good at hiding or very skittish. You know, so there's lots of times where we don't really realize someone's living in an area because you just happen not to be there at the same time as that animal or no one's looking for that animal there. And eDNA circumvents that usually very often because mm-hmm. did the animal walk through here at some point? All right, well, then there's a good chance you'll find it. Did it pee in this dirt? Yep. So now you have a good chance to find hidden members of the ecosystem, you know, or you'll find out, oh, actually, it seems like we knew this animal was in the nearby area. It seems they also are in this area. Now we can do that with the fossil record. And not only can we identify who was there, but we can also make inferences about how they're related to other populations, Mm -hmm. their evolutionary history. One of the authors in the article is quoted as calling this the moon landing of genomics. That's... That's cool. It's pretty cool. Now, it's one of the authors, right? (laughs) This is their study, and they're calling it that. But still, no, it's a pretty cool... This could potentially be, like I said with the last one, the first steps into a whole new avenue of studying ancient populations. Well, it's kind of like how screening sediment was not the common practice in, you know, older days of paleontology. That you went, you dug with pick, shovel, or spade, and found the fossils, and then you took them back to the museum, and then people started realizing, hey, you know, if we if we screen the dirt, we can find even smaller stuff, and now, like, at least at fossils, you know, some fossil sites, like the gray fossil site, it's common practice. It's just one of the steps, mm-hmm. just routine. You dig up the fossil, and then you put the dirt in the screens and wash it and get those fossils. This could be another one of those where, yep, you dig it, we find fossils aged where DNA could be found, take a scoop of dirt, and we're going to scan it now. And the other nice thing is that DNA, we've talked about this in episode 34, we talked about this. Getting DNA from fossils oftentimes also means destroying part of the fossil. Yeah, because you have to (laughs) atomize it almost to grind it up to get to the DNA. So this is another avenue to get DNA that doesn't jeopardize the fossils themselves. Which is always nice. Very cool stuff. Well, hey, I think I've demonstrated with my choice of news this episode that caves are a really cool source of information. They are pretty useful. What do you say we talk about caves for the rest of the whole episode? All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. Cool. Well, listeners, if you're down for that, stay tuned. Will, you've been inside caves. I have. I've been inside caves. Uh, There are tourist caves. Yes. Also, just like exploring around the wilderness caves. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes for fun, but also sometimes for, you know, biological investigation. Yes. Studying the cave or what's in it. Yeah. We've both been part of efforts to find fossils in caves. Yeah. Caves are are kind of a strange feature because I think that your first thought is... 
dark and mysterious and sort of uh, unusual, right? We don't, as humans, frequent caves very much. Yeah, they're not really made for us in a lot of ways. But they are ubiquitous everywhere. There are significant caves on almost every landmass on the planet. They are a common feature on Earth. Yeah, just (laughs) of land. And they are extremely important sources of biological information, right? Things live in caves, paleontological information, and geological information. Yeah, they really are just full of interesting discoveries yet to be made. Yeah, they're fascinating in just from every angle. In this episode, we are, I, we are going to try... <laughs> To condense the myriad ways that caves are interesting and fascinating briefly (laughs) from a number of different avenues. This is a very condensed course on why caves are so awesome. Yep. Caves from a paleo perspective, 101, starting now. (laughs) Go. Let's start with what caves are, because believe it or not, like a lot of things, there's not like a hard definition. But David, I thought caves were just fancy holes in the ground. And yes, that is exactly (laughs) it. Caves, I have seen caves referred to variously as subterranean openings in rock near the surface. There you go. One USGS, so United States Geological Survey, document that I found, defined caves as a natural opening in the ground extending beyond the reach of light and large enough to permit the entry of a person. Okay. And another document referring to the Italian cave registry called caves cavities sufficiently large to allow access to humans and more than five meters long. All right. So a big hole. Yeah, it can't be an outcropping of rock. It has to actually be a hole sizable and semi-deep. Right. However you define it, caves are found all over the world. They come in many different shapes and sizes Some of them are rather small, just rock shelters or grottos. Other caves can be quite large with extensive passageways, horizontal and vertical passageways, uh, big rooms inside them. Some caves are full of water. Some caves are not. Some caves have all sorts of cool features in them. All sorts of variety in terms of what the, 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 the form a cave can take. The largest caves in the world are seriously impressive caves. Intimidatingly impressive. The longest caves in the world, the, the one you will often hear referred to, is Mammoth Cave in West Central Kentucky, which is not too far from where we are. Resources that I found cited Mammoth Cave as having 660 kilometers or 415 miles of explored passageway. Yeah, of places people have been. We've documented with indications of plenty more. Ah. And just passageways, complex, twisting and curving and meeting and intersecting. Tons of it underground. And I think that's something that often gets misportrayed about caves is so often caves are shown as either just a tunnel or a big opening in the ground you know mm-hmm. like like even if those entrance is small then it's just this big room you know underground apartment right uh, but a lot of times it's much more like a labyrinth yes just passageways dead ends connections 
you know, and rooms, hallways, tunnels, and it's in, it can get really complex really fast. Yep. And though caves are typically the idea, you know, when we think of caves, we think of things connected to the surface. Mm -hmm. They can also go real deep. I looked around on the internet for what are the deepest caves, and <laughs> this is that. This is where I get nervous. <laughs> the examples that kept coming up, the the two that were commonly cited, were Veryovkina and Krubera Veronia caves in Georgia, not the state but the country, which are documented as going down to about two point two kilometers or one point three miles deep. Uh, deep, deep. <sighs> and I don't know the structure of these caves, so I don't know that if that's like a shaft that goes down two kilometers or just winding passages. And if you keep going down, eventually you're two kilometers below the surface. It makes me think of uh, there are stories of uh, of swimmers who like encounter a whale shark out in the wild and go to swim with it because they are gentle giants. They They can't really you know they, they don't have the jaws to bite you and they don't have the teeth to to take an arm yeah, off nor the inclination yeah so they're you, they're safe to be around you still shouldn't mess with wildlife leave them alone stop touching them stop feeding them but <laughs> swimmers will go out and you know grab onto a fin and ride with the whale shark for a little bit and you know enjoy their company and then realize that the whale shark has been slowly going down yep and when they let go they are now too deep to reach the surface and i that's what I feel like with this. Like, you could go exploring in this cave and be like, how deep are we? Oh, no. Yep. I don't have experiences getting personally lost in caves, but I do have experiences getting lost and far too deep in caves in Minecraft. Yes, yes. And that, and I have no interest in doing it in real life. I, I came not actually terribly close, but closer than I ever <laughs> want to come again to getting lost in a cave once, and that was terrifying. The study of caves is called speleology. Good name. And mo typically, research goes into the formation and structure of caves. So let's talk a bit about how caves become. Most caves are formed through dissolution. You will hear them called solution caves or dissolution caves. This is the classic way. Water flows through rock and opens up gaps. Yeah. Most commonly, this happens in carbonate rocks. Most famously, limestone. The way that this tends to work is that water, right? we live on a ridiculous planet where water falls from the sky, and it falls from the sky, and it ends up in lakes and rivers and stuff, and as it does, it collects carbon dioxide along the way. Mm -hmm. Collects it from the atmosphere, collects it from the soil, from vegeta you know, decaying plant matter or whatever. This carbon dioxide reacts with the water to form a weak carbonic acid, which, if it comes into contact with carbonate rock, will create a chemical reaction that weathers the rock. That eats it away just a little bit. This pro it, it picks up the calcium carbonate of the minerals in the rock, scooping away a little bit. This process can create holes and fissures. It can create vertical gaps and horizontal gaps. On the small scale, this can create little rivulets down an outcrop of limestone. Over extremely long periods of time, this can open up giant passages and caverns underground. The shape of a cave tends to be determined by the way the water flows. For that reason, caves often open up along joints or faults or bedding planes in the rock. Yeah, where the water was able to get a start. Yes, where it was able to seep through. Many active caves still have flowing water. 
There are plenty of caves that have streams or rivers that run through them. Uh, often caves have pools in them that have collected from the water that's flowing through. There are plenty of caves whose lower regions are flooded because that's where water is collecting. Caves are this incredible end result of thousands and thousands of years of water slowly carving through weathering, not just, you know, in some cases it can be erosional, yeah. right? A powerful stream can physically carve through sediment or rock. Yeah, abrasion it away. But dissolution caves, it's a chemical weathering process. It's a reaction. Which I think is uh, was interesting to me the first time I learned it, because typically when we think of water and rocks, I always think of like rivers and river stones, which are smoothed by the friction of stuff in the water, right. slowly sculpting the stones. And the, the river's edge is sculpted by the movement of the water, and it's a physical force. Right. And so the assumption when it's like, yeah, water can carve out caves, is that it's the same thing going on. Right. But it's actually... an acidic chemical reaction it's eating away the rock not carving it away it's scooping up some of the mineral which is fascinating and it means if you have a cave with flowing water you're in a cave that's currently being carved yeah this is awesome active cave i love that this can happen in limestone but also other carbonates it can happen in dolostone marble gypsum and so on and the fact that this dissolution process carves away the cave rock in the way that it does also means that it can put the minerals back down elsewhere yes which is how you get cave formations also called speleothems as water flows and picks up bits of calcium carbonate it flows and slowly carbon dioxide will escape the water it just evaporates out of the water and as that happens it reduces the acidity of the water and causes it to drop the calcium carbonate. Yeah, the carbon was what was allowing it to pick up those chemicals right. or the minerals. So once it loses it, it can no longer hold on to them. So as water evaporates, it tends to drop what bits of mineral it has picked up and it can drop them in consistent places to create new deposits of calcium carbonate, which is how you get structures that are often called dripstone, which is just any variety of shapes on the walls caused by water dropping calcium carbonate, famously stalagmites and stalactites. Mm -hmm. As the water drips off the ceiling, it'll leave a little bit of mineral behind, and when it lands, it drops a bit of mineral on the floor. These can eventually connect to make columns. If water drips down a slope, they can create what are called curtains or draperies. Oh, that's a good name. Which are sort of... I've also, uh, if I'm thinking of the same thing, I've seen these called cave bacon. (laughs) <laughs> which nice. is sort of a curtain or bacon shaped ridge coming off the ceiling yeah, it's if you think about like when a stream of water runs down the side of you know anything like a glass of water or you know a, a wall but if where it ran it added a little bit to the wall and then continued to run there eventually it would make a stream shaped structure yes sticking off the wall which is so it's so alien it's like the the rock is melting around you yeah you can get all sorts of cool structures uh, uh i've uh, the one that always comes to mind is cave popcorn yeah which are little bubbly bits so dissolution caves tend to be full of these cool cave formations which can also serve as a record of the formation of the cave over time stalagmites and stalactites tend to be built in layers 
of deposited minerals. So those are things geologists can study to get a record of conditions in the cave. Now, dissolution caves are the most famous and uh, numerous caves, but there are other examples. There are sea caves, which form when waves crash into the shore and hit rocks and just physically pound holes into the walls. Just mine a cave. You can also get caverns and fissures opening up under the sea. So you can have fissures in the the seabed that open up and end up permitting water to flow. Aeolian caves are cavities that can be opened up by in deserts by sandblasting. <laughs> Just the wind carrying sand across the air, hitting rocks and slowly carving holes in them. Like, the ocean is powerful and scary, and I don't want to be hit by it, but, like, just being sandblasted... For 10,000 years. Oh, that's... Oh, it's terrible. Well, if you if you don't want to be hit by waves or hit by sand, uh, the last type of cave that I'm going to mention are lava caves. <laughs> <laughs> Most commonly, lava caves are formed when lava flows out of the event in a volcano... And as it slowly flows, the outer edge of the lava flow is in contact with the air and hardens into a crust, while inside, the insulated liquid lava keeps flowing. Yeah, the the gooey core. The gooey core. So eventually, all the lava flows out, and what you're left with is this hollow tube of igneous rock that was once the outer edge of a lava flow. It's the skin of a lava flow left behind. So you get these lava caves. And of course, caves are associated with other features. So like uh, a, a classic limestone cave can also be connected to the surface via fissures. You can get sinkholes when the ceiling of the cave collapses. Caves are very active environments. There is continuous processes of not just water or sand or whatever it is opening up the cave, but collapses can happen or new areas can open up. Caves are ever changing. Yeah, like if if the water's flowing and wearing away a spot and starts to change the shape, it can change the flow and all of a sudden it can redirect and now the flow going to the right stops and it's now going left. Yep. And so that area is not being carved anymore. This new area is being carved. So they, it's it's still slow compared to our lifespan, but it is it is rapid compared to most other rock stuff. Yeah. And caves gradually often fill, right? Sediment is brought in from outside, and so you can get these layers of sediment building up in a cave, which are great for geologists. But all of this activity also means that caves tend to have a limited lifespan. Mm-hmm. Eventually a cave will either fall apart or fill up with sediment or with other rocks and stuff. And for that reason, most of the caves in the world that you can go into are relatively young, a few million years old. Yeah. Caves don't... There aren't, like, you can't go inside a cave that T-Rex walked into. Exactly. They don't typically live that long. Another interesting feature of caves is the conditions formed inside a cave. And this starts taking us in the direction of what kind of habitat Mm -hmm. a cave is. The deeper you get into a cave, the more the conditions become unique to caves. Alien. Specifically in regards to light, temperature, and humidity. Near the surface, near the entrance of a cave, 
the conditions are very similar to outside. There's sunlight. Uh, whatever the weather is outside is going to carry over into the cave entrance. But as you go deeper, you lose light. Eventually, you are in a place with no light, which, if you've ever been deep inside of a cave, is eerie. Yeah, actual perpetual darkness. But the other thing that happens deep inside a cave is that the temperature and humidity are not subject to fluctuating with the weather. Deep inside a cave, temperature tends to be stable all year round, and in fact, tends to be roughly the average temperature for the place in the world you are. Which means that caves tend to be relatively warm in the winter and relatively cool in the summer. Yeah. Which makes them really great places to go visit. They're just kind of consistently comfortable. <laughs> uh, now, this can vary. Uh, if you have a river coming into a cave, that can carry temperature from outside. Humidity is very similar. Uh, in active caves with water going through them, humidity is often quite high. You know, humidity in caves, I found one reference that suggested that humidity inside natural caves is often 95 to 100%. Oof. Humid places. But again, stable. It's not changing with the weather. Another feature inside caves is that they are low in nutrients. Plants, soils, things like that, you don't get a lot of raw material for eating, for making energy for yourself inside caves. The different zones of caves have names. So as I was reading about caves, I came across a number of different versions of, like, the entrance zone, the twilight zone, <laughs> which the, the very, you know, edge of where the light reaches, the penumbral zone, I think was another name for that. Cool. Uh, and then eventually the dark zone. All to suggest that as you get deeper, there is this gradient where you lose light, you lose temperature and humidity fluctuation, and eventually you are in a habitat that is unique to caves. Yeah, which makes it a very interesting place to visit because a lot of the dynamic things that we're used to out on the surface with weather changing and light happening and like noises and sounds from wind and whatnot and air movement are just all absent. There's no light. It's the same temperature. And it and it's like, at least in the, many of the ones I've been to, it it's you adjust to it and then it's just that way now. Yep. Like there's nothing to change. And then everything's still for the most part. So it's a very alien place to visit. Yeah, it doesn't change. The weather doesn't change. It's like California. Yes. <laughs> in my experience, uh, when I get, when you go in caves, you wear long pants and have a coat. Because mm -hmm. it's a little chilly. Yeah. Uh, every cave I've ever been in has been a little chilly. Though I have gotten to visit a cave one time when it we were in like... We weren't quite in winter, but we were in fall. And it, it had the opposite of... We were we were bundled up going in, and then once we got in, you could roll up your sleeves a little bit because it's like, ooh, so it's, actually, a, it's pretty comfortable. Now that you mention it, I don't know that I've ever been in a cave outside of the summer. Yeah. I think every time I've ever been in a cave has been in the summer. Huh. Well, the conditions that are formed inside of a cave are important considerations for the next thing I want to talk about, which is cave life. Yes. The organisms, the ecosystems that live inside caves... The study of life in caves is called biospeleology. Good name. And life inside caves, organisms that live in caves, are called cavernicolous, or cavernicolous, however you'd like to say that. I like that. So, what lives in caves? The answer is tons of stuff. Let's go down a list. First and foremost, microbes. Yep. Obvi caves are 
definitely a source of habitat for microbes. You can get bacteria, algae, fungi, not just microbial fungi, but also, you know, fungi, mushrooms and stuff. Obviously, near the entrance to a cave, there's lots of opportunity for those kinds of organisms. But even deep inside of caves, you can get bacteria that are lithotrophs, that metabolize by oxidizing iron or by basically using the rock to derive their energy. Yeah. I've even seen some references to non-photosynthesizing algae living in caves, using sort of chemical uh, uh, avenues for their metabolism. Chemosynthesis. It has also been pointed out in some places that there are parasitic microbes that can make their way in caves by being parasites on other cavernicolous organisms. Plants are very common near the entrances to caves. Yeah. (laughs) In cave entrances, especially things like mosses and ferns and liverworts, uh, not so much trees and flowering plants tend to need lots of light, but these more basal plants, these, quote, simpler plants, tend to do quite well at the entrances to caves. It's very moist. There's lots of material there. Plants can even get deeper than you'd expect. There was a 2012 study that found a nettle growing in two limestone caves in southwest China. They named the species Pilia cavernicola. They were found living in areas deep into the cave that got, as they measured, between 2.7 and 0.04% full daylight. Wow. So very little sunlight was getting in there, and these plants seemed to be making do with those tiny amounts of sunlight. The the life will find a way sure does apply here. But once you get deep in a cave, plants need light. The the only time I ever saw plant stuff deep in a cave was uh, one back in Georgia that we used to visit with the scouts. And it was tree roots. Yes. Breaking through the ceiling and coming down. And one area that had been dubbed the chapel because it had these massive set of roots coming through that they called the the bell rope. Nice. Like it, for for the, the hunchback to, yep, exactly. to ring. So there yeah. was these areas of the cave where there was just these tendrils of root coming through the ceiling and hanging down. But nothing green on them. Right. Just... They broke through and kept growing and haven't stopped yet. There is an exception. There, is, there are a number of plants that have found a workaround to the limitations of living deep inside caves. This is not a taxonomic group, but just a category of plants named lumpenflora. I like it. These are plants and other algae, cyanobacteria, photosynthesizers that can use artificial light to photosynthesize. Oh, So in caves that humans have lit up, either for tourism or for, you know, working in the cave, there are plants, specifically mosses, ferns sometimes, liverworts, these kinds of plants that can make do with somewhat less light. Certain algae, certain cyanobacteria can live deep inside caves if we put lights in there. Awesome. And they're a big problem. (laughs) I started reading about lump and the first paper I saw was like, the aesthetic problem of lumpenflora. And I was like, what? That's what? Because you don't like the way it looks. But then I read deeper and I found out that the issue is that A, they can destroy the rock. Mm-hmm. They can damage caves. Now they're laying down roots. Yep, exactly. Yeah, they're churning up the rock. And they can form the foundation for invasive ecosystems. <laughs> so like people are accidentally bringing in spores or seeds or whatever. 
But then also if there's plants, you can start a whole new ecosystem of invasive species. So like national parks, for example, there's been a lot written about how to prevent plants from growing inside your caves that you've lit up for con- for conserving the, the caves. I love that so much, mostly <laughs> because it immediately makes me think of the movie Evolution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where we are the aliens crashing into a cave and creating alien ecosystems inside a subterranean place. Yep. All those subterranean organisms are like, what is the green? <laughs> There's never been green in here. <laughs> and a caterpillar comes. <gasps> <laughs> Speaking of animals, there are also animals that live in caves. They are generally called troglofauna. Yeah. Troglo, caves. Uh, there are terrestrial habitats in caves, the soil, rocks, wa- the walls and ceiling of the caves, kind of fissures and stuff, and aquatic habitats, ponds, streams, you know, little fissures full of water. Animals that live in caves are generally categorized into different groups, different terms, depending on their relationship to the cave. These terms vary, so I've seen different usages here and there. I've seen a variety of terms, so I'm going to give you a general overview. Yeah, there's not a single agreed-upon list. Right. Category number one, trogloxenes. Man, all the terms in this episode are so cool. Oh, they're so Oh, just you wait. Trogloxenes, which I've also seen referred to as cave guests. <laughs> this term is generally used for animals that use caves but do not create populations in the cave they don't live their whole life in the cave they need the surface for something so this is category would include things like bears yep or rodents or you know snakes that go into fissures and stuff animals that are denning or hibernating or uh, even maybe going into the cave to find resources they're visiting they're not occupying right there are birds that make nests in caves there are snakes that go into those caves to eat the birds probably the most famous animals in the world that fit into this category are bats yeah that's why there's a million caves named bat cave bat cave (laughs) bats roost in caves uh i I think they mate in caves Mm -hmm. they raise their young in caves but they can't live their whole lives in caves they need to go get food yeah they don't feed in the cave they go and they go out to eat Yes. And then come back to the cave. <laughs> uh, now, I have seen there is a, a, a area of overlap between this term and the next term. And I've seen bats referred to in both. The next term is troglophiles. Animals that like caves. Animals that can live in caves, can form cave populations, can spend most or even all of their life cycle in the cave, might even have some adaptations for the cave, but also live elsewhere. Yeah. So animals that can live out in the soils on the surface and also in a cave. This group includes, for example, uh, salamanders. Mm -hmm. There -hmm. are some species of salamander that can live in caves, but also on the surface. Yeah, I live in in streams, and this cave happens to have a stream. So I might spend my whole life here, but it's not necessarily just because it's a cave. And there are tons of bugs. Yeah. Insects arachnids, crustaceans that live in caves, but also outside of caves. These are troglophiles. And like I said, there's some overlap between trogloxenes and troglophiles. There's some subcategories I've seen. Uh, I've seen the term subtroglophile, which in some cases means the same thing as trogloxenes. Mm -hmm. Generally, these are animals with varying levels of how much they use the cave. Uh, The 
insect troglophiles made me immediately think of cave crickets. Yes. Named for living in caves, but were also in my basement back in North Georgia. So there you go. Another category of animals in caves, a very important one, is called accidentals. (laughs) These are animals that don't belong in this cave. Oopsie. This can animals can fall in. Right, if, if there's an entrance to the cave that is on the ground above the cave, sometimes animals can fall. Uh, they can be washed in, right, downstream into the cave. Uh, one source that I said referred to animals wandering into the cave. <laughs> so sometimes you just got lost. <laughs> so like, some, like a bison, most times you didn't mean to come in here, buddy. This so is not sorry. a this is not a cave bison. Right. <laughs> this is a very unlucky bison. Accidental animals in caves typically don't stick around very long. They either leave or they die. This is something that would happen a lot. Uh so I did excavations in a cave in South Dakota a couple summers back in my college days, and every now and then we'd be down there digging in the cave and there'd be like a mouse mm-hmm. or at least one or two times a snake that had fallen into the cave and was now, all right, the rest of your life, you can't get out of here. Yeah. There's there's no exit that you can access. So now you are just as you live in this cave for as long as until you run out of food. Yeah, it's, it, it's a subterranean castaway situation. Yes. Uh, which is horrifying. <laughs> and then the last category are the troglobites. Also, I've seen called troglobionts. That's so much better. Uh, Not to be confused with troglodyte, which is a term that refers to people living in caves, which isn't really a thing. Uh, Troglodyte famously uh, used as an insult in the movie Jurassic Park, The Lost World. Yes. Troglobites are obligate cavernicoles, which is to say animals limited to caves. They are specially adapted to living deep inside caves. They don't go outside. That's where they spend their whole lives. The actual introverts. Yes, the, the, just the <laughs> most introverted. Not like us wannabes <laughs> that call us the actual introverts. The first, uh, according to what I've read, the first scientifically recognized troglobite was uh, identified in 1831, Leptodirus hotchin a cave beetle. Okay. From Slovenia, Croatia, and Italy, so the Adriatic Sea northern region. It is about seven millimeters long, has no wings, no eyes, lacks pigment, so the coloration in its body, and has long legs and long antennae. Yeah. We have come to recognize that these features are very common. There are cave shrimp, cave millipedes, cave spiders, lots of cave insects, and they often tend to share these features. They tend to be small, blind, lacking in pigment, coloration, and often with long appendages and long antennae. Because when you live in a world without light, tactile sensation becomes much more important. Yes. Also, reduced wings are very common in insects. Yeah, where are you going to fly to? Where are you flying? (laughs) There are also cave snails, flatworms, velvet worms, often adapted to living on the limited resources inside the caves. Among vertebrates... Uh, famous cases include cave salamanders. Yeah. Uh, including, we have some here. There are Tennessee cave salamanders. There's also a, a type of salamander called the Proteus, or Olm, which is a worm-like salamander species. These are often blind, often colorless, 
and typically have very good senses like smell and hearing. Mm -hmm. But probably the most famous cavernicolous troglobitic vertebrates are cave fish. Mm -hmm. There are hundreds of species of cave fish that are adapted to living in the streams and pools and rivers of caves. Often they are blind, often they are lacking pigment. Perhaps the most famous one, or at least one of the most well-studied, is Astyanax mexicanus, the Mexican tetra, or Mexican cave fish. In northeastern Mexico, there are 29 cave populations, uh, and one surface population. <laughs> These fish have reduced two lost eyes, so some of them have like little vestiges of eyes, some of them they're gone. They're lacking in pigment. They also don't school, so they have lost the schooling habit. And they don't sleep as much. Oh. They have a reduced duration of sleep. Huh. On the other hand, they tend to have an enhanced lateral line system. Their lateral line organs, the organs they use to sense movement in the water, are expanded. And they have additional, like, extra dense taste buds, both in their mouth, on their lips, and under their heads. Huh. For tasting around. So these are common features we see in cave-adapted creatures, is losing some things you don't need and enhancing particularly sensory adaptations. And uh, a lot of these features, I I've heard people, when I've talked about this topic before, express confusion of to, like, wh why would they lose that thing? Like, you know, they don't, they don't know they don't need it. You know, that's not how evolution's supposed to work. Why would they right. lose it? And, and this is really a case of if you don't use it, you lose it. And indeed, we're going to talk a bunch about that yeah. a little later on. Now, because you liked the terminology, I will also point out that I saw in a lot of places that it is common in referring to cave faunas for terrestrial animals to be called trogloxenes, troglophiles, and troglobites, but for the aquatic cave faunas to be called stigoxenes, stigophiles or stigobites cool uh, stig i believe uh derives from the river sticks oh they live in the underworld yeah they do oh <laughs> this is so cool now sometimes it can be difficult to identify a troglobite like you were kind of uh, similar to what you were saying there are some species there's a apparently a famous case of a fungus geomyces destructans which for a while was like the go-to example of a cave-dwelling fungus that was later found living outside of a cave. Faker. So oftentimes it can be kind of tough to know which are the which are true troglobites and which are actually troglophilic. They're kind of, you know, moving around. Mostly troglobites, but not all. One paper that I read said that it is suspected there could be 50 to a. 100,000 species of cave-adapted animals on Earth. One other study that I said specified that there are about 3,000 crustaceans <laughs> adapted specifically to cave life. This is a common recurring path in evolution for animals adapting to underground life. Well, it's got kind of that... that, that island thing going of they're isolated down there mm -hmm. so it it makes sense that there's diversity because yeah you this cave's not hanging out with that cave yeah so it's you have the ones that live here and then those ones that live over there and never between shall the two meet <laughs> yep. and indeed i've read about species that are observed to have 
gone down into caves, dispersed through underwater channels, and then become isolated in different sections of caves. That's awesome. Now, one other note is that as you have lots of organisms living in caves, you also develop a unique ecology inside the caves. Near the entrance to caves, there are there's lots of diversity. There's lots of troglyxenes and troglophiles. There's animals nesting and denning. There's tons of plants, which means there's lots of nutrients. There's, there's a surface-style ecosystem existing by the entrance. It's still being able to be fed by the sun. But as you go deeper and it gets darker, nutrients become rarer, life becomes rarer. This is the realm of the troglobites, where you don't have sunlight. There are no producers, right? Plants, there's no producers here. And no herbivores. Yep. Because there's no herbs. So instead, the nutrition tends to come. Uh, some of it can come from microbes, right? There are microorganisms that can live and thrive down there. Debris is a common source of nutrition. Things that either fall down into the cave or get washed in, you know, vegetation getting washed in from outside through the streams. And also, nutrition is generously donated by troglophiles, troglyxenes, and accidentals. <laughs> yep. As animals come in, they might make their nests, they might leave behind poop, they might leave carcass, you know, that mouse that falls into the cave where it doesn't belong is going to live down there until it can't, and then it's going to die and contribute itself nutritionally to the rest of the cave. That's where a lot of the nutrition deep inside a cave is coming from, is from the visitor's or things or debris coming into the cave, either through water or gravity. It makes me think of like a, a ter terrestrial whale fall, where yeah. whales fall down into the the deep o ocean floor where nutrients is very rare and spread out, and suddenly you have this huge source come down. In a cave, it's a, a branch or a body yeah. coming in, much smaller scale, but still the same concept. Absolutely. A buffet <laughs> suddenly arrives. And one of the quintessential examples of this, of course, again, is bats. Yeah. Bats form huge colonies, sometimes deep inside caves, and they not only uh, contribute the bodies of dead bats, but guano. Guano. Bats leave behind so much poop, and it can lead to ecosystem... I, I've seen the term guanobes. <laughs> For the ecosystem of organisms that live specifically inside piles of bat poop. Insects, uh, snails, microbes, of course, all sorts of things. When it, and it creates a unique ecosystem, not just for these things living there, but in the cave. Like When I've seen documentaries of people visiting deep bat colonies, you know, not ones right near the entrance, but deep down, all of that guano also changes the atmosphere. Yeah. And so, like, they're usually wearing breathing equipment yep. <laughs> and, like, hazmat suits because it, it would be toxic for a human just to hang out there. Yeah, because it's a giant pile of poop. Yeah. That is one big pile of poop. Yep. And so it's like, it is a bat-created ecosystem that you'll only find deep in caves. Yep. Guanobes. Oh, I love it so much. So, inside cave environments, oftentimes the base of the food chain is detritivores animals eating detritus and then predators can come in you know cave spiders or whatnot come in to feed on those so it is a different a unique ecology 
compared to the surface. An environment fed by death and waste. Yeah. Which is, oh, it's... The underworld. It's the underworld! It is. They're very cool. Now, that is all tons of information about caves today. After our break, we'll talk first about evolution in caves. Cave... How cave biota comes to be the way it is. And then, of course, we will talk about fossils. Stay tuned. The evolution of troglobites, specifically cave-adapted animals, is an intensely studied topic. How do you become a denizen of the underworld? How do you become a denizen? And one of the reasons that it's an intensely studied topic, it's of extreme interest to people who study evolution, because it's these are great case studies where you have a clear direction of natural selection, right? Surface to underground, specific factors at play, right? Light especially being a factor, low nutrition being a factor, and oftentimes troglobites, cave-dwelling species, have relatives up on the surface that you can compare with. So these are excellent models for studying evolution along a specific path. As we mentioned before, cave morphs, cave creatures, tend to have specific traits, which I have seen referred to as troglomorphies, (laughs) among which there's lots of convergence. Some of the traits are uh, what is called regressive, so you're losing things. Eyes especially. Many, many cave creatures have reduced eyes or lost their eyes completely. Pigmentation, the coloration in the skin. Wings uh, on insects. Uh, tend to be reduced or lost. I mentioned with the cave fish, loss in reducing of schooling behaviors or sleeping duration. But there are also constructive traits, like the enhancing of sensory features. Antennae tend to be longer, lateral line systems in fish. And not only is there lots of convergence, different groups repeatedly evolving these features, But there's also convergence that have been observed in how these changes come about. For example, one study I found was studying fish, cave fish, and found that there are many examples of cave fish that have lost pigmentation. And when they looked at the genetic physiological basis of it, they found that they had developed similar mutations interrupting the first steps of melanin production. The production of colored pigments. So not only convergently losing pigments, but convergently developing mutations that interrupt the same step in pigment production. Yeah, they genetically, they lost pigmentation in similar ways. Yes. Cool. And another study I found found very similar defects in two different populations of cave plant hoppers. Insects. One in Hawaii and one in Croatia. Wow. So, convergence in the mechanism of loss. One of the most studied, like, model organisms in this kind of study is that Mexican cavefish I mentioned before, the tetra. Like I said, there are 29 cave populations with one nearby surface population, and studies have found that these fish seem to have developed troglobitism at least three times, and then spread throughout the caves, 
And among the various populations, there are different degrees of adaptation. Oh! Like, some of them are completely eyeless, others have reduced eyes. Same thing with pigmentation. Some of them are purely albino, right? No pigment. Others are kind of on the way. So they are a great species to study to try to understand the process of this evolutionary adaptation. That's exciting. And along with these examinations of how do you end up this way are questions of why, (laughs) which gets to what you were saying. Why do cave creatures keep evolving the same features? Yeah, what's the benefit of losing your eyes or losing your pigment? Now, constructive traits are easy. Yeah. Like, yeah, you better senses are more beneficial. The better your sensory structures, the more successful you will be. You pass on your traits and natural selection runs its course. Yeah, if you get structures or uh, morphologies that make you better moving around a cave, obviously you're going to have an edge on those who don't. Right. But regressive traits have garnered lots of discussion. Why do you lose your eyes? Why do you lose pigment? And why is it so consistent? Mm -hmm. There are a few different hypotheses. The main two that I've seen, which are sort of opposite ends of a spectrum, one is the neutral mutation hypothesis, which suggests that if you don't need it, your body's not actively preserving it, Mm -hmm. and natural selection is not actively preserving it. So the logic here is, if a trait is not beneficial... There isn't what is called purifying selection. Yeah. So often when we talk about natural selection, we think about it in terms of this new trait is beneficial, so it becomes exacerbated over the course of natural selection. Yeah, it becomes selected for. But if you have a trait that works really well, natural selection will start weeding out defects. So if you are born with a messed up something important. Eyes. Eyes. If your eyes have a weird mutation in them, you you, a creature in the wild, odds are that individual's not going to survive very well, not going to pass on that genetic defect, and now it's gone. Yep. It was selected against. But if you are in a cave and you don't need eyes for seeing because it's dark or you don't need pigment to uh, pigmentation is good for UV protection. From sunlight, that sun is a deadly laser, but also for communication, which doesn't work if no one can see it. So if you don't need it, mutations are free to build up and just eventually now those mutations can spread throughout the population. Yeah, like basically out of a, a group of newborns on the surface, if some of them are born with as albinos or with weaker eyes they are at a disadvantage to those born without those mutations. In a cave, same population, same you know, same amount of mutations, they're all on equal playing fields. Right. No one can see, no matter how good your eyes work, and no one is getting more defense from the sun because there's no sun. Right. So you all just have the same chances, which means those mutations are now just part of the gene pool. Yeah, and they can just spread throughout. Yep. On the other hand, some have suggested... Uh, the hypothesis that reduction in these features could be an adaptation, that it is beneficial for some reason to lose those things, that it's not just everyone's on the same playing field, but that if you have a genetic defect that breaks your eyes or something, now it's actually a benefit and you are more likely to survive and pass on your genes. In the case of eyes, which a lot of this discussion has revolved around, 
Uh, the two suggestions I've seen are that it could be that eyes are just expensive. Yeah, that it's tough to build eyes. You're using a lot of energy to build and maintain eye tissue. And also uh, that eyes are a vulnerability. Exactly. That you you have these two weak spots on your face that if one gets hurt, you're in big trouble, which for us is totally worth the risk because of how important eyes are. But if you don't need them, then having smaller eyes or something means that you have a smaller weak spot and you're less likely to get hurt or something like that. Another suggestion is that reductive processes might happen as a side effect of something else. So in the case of the fish, um, adaptations to the structure of the head to help improve their feeding could, as a byproduct, just kind of mess up the eyes, and it doesn't matter. Yeah, and it's kind of like the random mutations. While you're changing the shape of your skull... If it makes your eyes smaller, that doesn't have any negative effect. Right. So it's more likely for weird adaptations like that to happen among yes. cavefish. Now, this is not a settled debate. There are a lot. I've seen, I, I came across one study in from 2012 that pointed out that there are lots of mutations in cavefish genetics, in the eyes, uh, uh, genetically the eye structure of cavefish that seems to support the mutation hypothesis that these are just accumulating. And also that some studies have looked for and not found any difference in the survival rate of blind versus seeing forms in caves. But other studies, so I found one in 2015, that did present evidence that eye tissue, not just the eyes, but the nerves that support them, have a metabolic cost, that they are indeed expensive, so we might expect them to be selected against. I saw a 2017 study that found that the kind of the patterns of eye loss we see in cavefish, they modeled should require strong selection. That in in order to see it as prevalent and as uh, perhaps as rapidly developing as we see in cavefish, it should be under that random mutations shouldn't do it quite as effectively. Yeah, for the pattern that we're seeing to have formed, there it should be evolutionarily beneficial. Right. It sh- there should be positive selection for that. And then I saw a 2017 study that suggested that one of the differences they see between uh, seeing and blind cavefish, it has to do not with the genetics sh- as strictly studied, but the methylation of the DNA. So epigenetics, Oh, that this might be related to epigenetic changes. All that to say, we don't have a solid answer. And my guess, my completely out of this realm of study expectation is that probably there's a combination of factors. That's what I was going to say is it's very easy to think of a scenario where both can happen, where a population gets isolated in a cave. Some of them are born albino and it doesn't matter which means that trait becomes more common and then either another mutation in it or, you know, another step, another mutation regardless, you know, unconnected from albinism gives a genetic benefit because of that previous one Mm. or that, you know, the same thing with eyes. One of them's born with weaker eyes and it doesn't matter, but then an extra mutation on top of that makes reducing the eyes actually beneficial. And now there's a pressure to what was a random... So it it could happen both ways. It might happen more one with one group or more one with another group. There's lots of cave populations, so there's lots of ways for it to go. And 
And if you know, it wouldn't be surprising at all to find out that the evolutionary pressures are different for cave fish versus cave shrimp versus whatever else. Yep. Now, at this point, one might wonder, okay, all of this is looking at like DNA to examine the evolution, uh, phylogenetics to determine where are they originating. But what about fossils? Yeah, what do the fossils say? What is the fossil record? Uh, there is a 2020 study that I came across that purports to have identified the oldest known cavernicolous organism. This is a cockroach from Burmese amber, about 100 million years old, which they named Mulleriblatina boengi. It is very small, has reduced eyes, reduced pigment, non-functional wings, long antennae, very dense hairs, sensory hairs on the body, which they interpreted as a troglo... they called it a troglomorph cave-adapted cockroach. The paper suggests that this is the first unequivocal troglomorph from the Mesozoic. The only known... Now, the unequivocal means not disputed, not debated, definitely. Basically, everyone who looks at it agrees. Right. And it is worth noting that it it is called unequivocal by the people who published the paper. They all looked at it and they agree. Yeah. (laughs) Which isn't to say that that they're wrong or closed-minded or anything. But someone else could come along and look at it and go, "Mm, I'm now going to write a paper to (laughs) equivocate. (laughs) And that has happened before. Uh, There was a 2010 study that looked at a spider cricket from Dominican amber that had troglomorphies. Lost pigment, reduced eyes, small wings, long limbs, but was found in amber alongside soil bugs. So they suggested could have been living in caves, but probably not a troglobite. And the cockroach paper points to a few other examples of things that were thought to be troglobites, but probably not. Um, it is worth pointing out that their cockroach was found in amber. That I, that was what I thought of, is either that's a very lost cockroach, or that amber like had the opening from Dinosaur of the Egg. It just traveled <laughs> the most now, crazy route. They do point out... Uh, that it could have come from roots going yeah. into the cave, like you were talking about before. That makes sense. And I think they also found it a nearby soil-dwelling forms. So whether this is a true troglobite, it definitely has those features. So there is a fossil record of these features. I did see another paper that uh, said troglobites in the title, a 2011 study, that found fossils from undersea cave deposits, and it called them submarine troglobites. These weren't troglobites in the way that we're thinking of them, at, you know, animals adapted to live deep inside caves. This was a bunch of corals and bivalves and things living in a cave, similar to undersea cavern things today. Not quite the specially adapted troglobitic forms. So... Cockroach paper says the only Mesozoic troglobites, they also don't list any Cenozoic examples. (laughs) So younger than 65 million years old. I did a bunch of searching on the internet and did not find any publications talking about fossil troglobites. And I went and asked our colleague, Dr. Blaine Schubert, who is a cave guy, does lots of cave paleontology. And I said, Blaine, are there fossil troglobites? And he immediately shook his head and said, nope, I've wondered about that. Now, uh, he did specifically mention fish and salamanders, and he is a vertebrate paleontologist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's 
feasible that there are, particularly inverts, uh, that maybe he hasn't heard of. I did an online search, but of course, if there are publications of fossil crustaceans or bugs, those tend not to get a lot of attention on the internet, uh, either in like news articles or they might not be cited very often. So this isn't to say that there are zero fossils of troglobites, but I don't know of any. And going back to our news, if that Tyrannosaurus research is to be <laughs> accurate, caves are pretty isolated. Like, even though they are more common than we often think, they're still very island-esque, yep. isolated, specialized ecosystems with very sparsely populated you know, groups yep. of organisms. So those numbers do not fare well for them to be fossilizing often. They're low. They're small populations of typically rare and small and delicate creatures. Also, that cockroach study uh, makes the point that cave populations seem to be short-lived. Mm -hmm. uh, which makes sense uh, if you think about it logically, because caves, as we described, are short-lived in geologic terms. It makes me think of hydrothermal vent yeah. ecosystems, where they're only there while this structure is able to be maintained. And then once it's gone, the whole ecosystem's gone. And they even did a big survey of phylogenetic data from modern cavernicoles, uh, cave dwellers. And, and according to their analysis, all living troglobite groups, invertebrates, vertebrates, all of them have their, seem to have their origins in the late Cenozoic. Yeah. So within the last, you know, 30 million years or so, and I found a couple other studies, like the cavefish, uh, the Mexican cavefish are thought to have originated maybe several million years ago at oldest. There was one of spiders that found them to originate in the Miocene. Cave populations, cave adapted groups seem to have a population lifespan of maybe tens of millions of years, but don't survive particularly long. Yeah. So... If that is accurate, not only does that limit the amount of time they're around to it be fossilized, but it also means that the cave animals we have in the world today are recent. There aren't populations that are like, yes, this goes back to the, the Jurassic. Those cockroaches are potentially evidence of an early adaptation to caves, which isn't surprising. There have been caves forever, but we don't seem to have a fossil record for troglobites. We don't have a good sense of troglobites through Earth history. Which is one of those bizarre things of... There are, de there are lots of groups that we know are rare to fossilize because they're delicate or they live in an inconvenient area. This is an ecosystem type. Yeah. That we're basically lacking in the fossil record. Well, it's kind of like mountains. Yeah. Like, we don't get fossils of mountaintop ecosystems very often but stuff lives up there yeah so it it once again emphasizes how incomplete the fossil record is yeah and how there are some things that are basically completely absent from it this being a very unique yeah ecosystem that's completely almost entirely just not there so if anybody out there knows of a thing I missed of fossil troglobites, let us know. Send Please. us. Now, troglobites seem to be rare, if not nearly non-existent in the fossil record. 
but trogloxines and troglophiles are very common. I mentioned examples in the news. Bears, cats, all sorts of creatures commonly found not only from ancient cave environments, but often found in caves. Mm -hmm. Fossils in caves, which brings me to the topic of cave paleontology. Caves are hugely important for paleontology. They are a major source of fossils, particularly from the Quaternary, the last two million years or so. Caves with fossils are known from basically all over the world, and a lot of our understanding of ecosystems over the last couple million years comes from cave deposits. Yeah, yeah for, for paleontologists, lots of caves are caves of wonder. Yes. <laughs> they're, they're all real good, and we touch everything. We, t- we touch everything. <laughs> but the lamp and flora. Yeah. <laughs> One of the reasons that caves are a great place to find fossils is because they are a good place for fossils to happen. Caves tend to be sheltered. They are protected from the elements, the wind, the rain, the weather. They tend to have relatively stable temperature and humidity. In a lot of ways, caves have a similar environment to a museum's collections room. That's what I was about to say. Low light, consistent temperature and humidity. Not many visitors. Not many, yeah, exactly. No (laughs) one's coming in and messing with them. Uh, Scavengers are not very common. In some cases, um, especially in arid regions where the caves can be nice and dry, they can also be great for soft tissues, uh, coprolites, fossil poop, episode 30, uh, and even DNA. Another reason that caves are a great source of paleontological information is that they are also great accumulators of fossils. Not just a great place for fossils to preserve, but they're good at collecting fossils for a number of reasons. Yeah, they're natural storage bins. One is that caves, lots of animals live in caves. They attract animals. There are tons of extinct species called cave. Cave bears, cave lions, cave hyenas, cave men. (laughs) (laughs) These are animals that spent time in caves. Most of the things we call cave whatever didn't live in caves, but they use caves for shelter, for denning, for hibernating. Uh, Bears are commonly found in caves for those reasons. Uh, Our friend Aaron Woodruff, one of our colleagues uh, from uh, grad school, was part of a 2019 study that looked at fossils from Bat Cave, Missouri, which recorded multiple years of peccary fossils from peccaries that were using the cave in the winter. Yeah. They were sheltering there in the winter. And because they were, it was a cool study because what they found was that they were only capturing the peccaries at certain stages of their life. Because they were only in there in the winter. Yeah. Which was pretty cool. That's awesome. Rampart Cave in the Grand Canyon region. The Grand Canyon is loaded with cave sites. Chock-a-block. Like, the National Park Service here in the U.S. keeps an eye on caves for conservation and for sources of uh, natural history information. And Grand Canyon National Park is loaded with caves. Rampart Cave is famously full of ground sloth poop. Yeah. There are great pictures online of just piles of Shasta ground sloth droppings filling this cave. And then, of course, uh, hominins, humans and our ancestors, for a long time have used caves as shelters, homes. Uh, there are burials in caves. 
Of course, there's artwork Mm -hmm. in caves. Our ancestors and ancestral cousins used caves for parts of their lives. And then, of course, of course, bats. Yeah. There are fossil deposits documenting entire colonies of bats that can be identified from the remains of dead bats and from guano. Layers of bat guano. (laughs) Sedimentary bat guano. Yes. Also, I found a reference to uh, bat colonies leave staining on the ceiling. Oh. If I remember, like, that there's, you can see where they were roosting, which is kind of cool. Makes sense. Gross, but makes sense. So, right off the bat, animals live in caves. There are tons of things that go into caves, so they tend to leave remains. Another way that caves can accumulate creatures is by acting as natural traps. Oh, it's such a good term. You remember those accidentals we were talking about? Animals fall into caves and then get trapped. Uh, There is a famous example in Wyoming called Natural Trap Cave, which has been sampled for fossils for a long time. Uh, The cave that I mentioned working on in South Dakota was one of those. This was in the Black Hills. The entrance to the cave was a small hole, you know, a couple feet across, at the top of a 40-foot vertical shaft that went down into a sizable cave. And at the bottom of the shaft was tens of thousands of years of built-up sediment. And within that sediment were bones and plant remains of things that had fallen in across the last several thousand years. It's just a pitfall. So we would have to lower ourselves down 40 feet on a harness, on a winch. Uh, and every now and then you'd get down there and there'd be a dead thing on top of the the pile. You go, well, it still works. Yep, yep. It's <laughs> n- no maintenance yet required. <laughs> Caves can also accumulate remains uh, via transport. So water can wash things into caves if there's a river going into it or something. Also, just things roll into caves. So fissures, sinkholes, uh, if the entrance is sloped. Sometimes things just tumble down slopes. Caves are a low point, so they tend to just accumulate stuff from their environment. Yeah, gravity's on your side for things to end up in caves. Yes. (laughs) And then, of course, one of the most famous ways that caves accumulate evidence, and the most dramatic and exciting way, is that the animals that live in caves bring other stuff into caves. Yeah. So bats and especially birds of prey are famous for doing this. They use caves oftentimes as roosts. So they go out flying, hunt things, bring them back to the cave and then eat them and leave behind either the stuff they didn't eat or in the case of things like owls, they'll cough up pellets. So in that way, birds especially can sample for miles around the cave and bring back small rodents and things like that from the surrounding area into this cavern time capsule. It's just the ultimate convenience. On the larger scale, carnivore, you know, carnivorans can do this. Carnivorous mammals, bears, cats like Homotherium we talked about in the the news. The cave hyenas. Hi- yep, that's what I was going to say. Uh, we might have mentioned this, I think, in the hyenas episode. Yep, we did. 109. That there is a famous cave deposit, Kirkdale Cave in England, which was described by Reverend William Buckland in the 1820s, which is a huge collection of hyenas, hyena poop, 
and chewed up bones. Yeah. Because hyenas were bringing food back there and chomping it up. Another group of animals that do this a lot is rodents. Most famously, things like pack rats and porcupines will create dens in caves and bring in nesting materials and food and stuff. Pack rats especially are a huge source of information for environmental data because they will create middens, which are these sort of debris piles. And they go out into the world, collect seeds and little bones and just whatever curiosities they find, bring them back to the cave, put them in the midden, pee all over it, (laughs) and then their pees and poops form a concretion that solidifies this midden. And some of these can be active for thousands of years, passing down the generations of pack rats. And they're just these incredible gross time capsules of information from the surrounding environment. Yeah, I, I the first time I learned about that was fascinated by the, oper- the, the, the potentiality of what could be locked away in these and never had any interest to ever actually be the one to excavate it our our friend jim mead told me has told me a number of times that you can tell the age of a pack rat midden by the smell (laughs) (laughs) Uh, other animals do things like this raccoons will den in caves apparently tasmanian devils are known to do this they'll bring stuff back to caves and den in there so caves are just an exceptional source of information there's many different avenues by which things from the surrounding environment are brought into caves. Now, most caves are young. Like I said, most most fossil cave deposits are within the last couple million years because eventually caves die or get filled in. But there are examples of older cave deposits. Typically, these are filled. So this is a fissure or a gap that was once open and is now filled with sediment, but we can still find it and recognize what it was. Just a few examples that I I pulled from a a really great paper by Ernie Lindelius, who actually, now that I think of it, was one of the authors on the Homotherium study that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Ernie Lindelius, the great granddaddy of quaternary mammal paleontology. Yay. A few examples from that paper. uh, There are Paleozoic examples. So in Oklahoma, there is the Arbuckle limestone, which is Ordovician in age, but there are fissures in it filled with Permian sediment. Oh. So these are fissures that opened during the Permian and are filled with fossils of Permian vertebrates. On a similar note, another example from the Mesozoic is that there is, in Romania, limestone that was laid down during the late Jurassic that has fissures filled with early Cretaceous material with dinosaurs and pterosaurs in it. That sediment that collected in fissures. And for an older Cenozoic example, here in East Tennessee, the limestone is Ordovician in age, but there's a real cool fossil site you might have heard us mention right nearby that is a sinkhole that opened up in the limestone and filled with sediment during the Pliocene. Yeah. The gray fossil site is a fill within the limestone so we can get these can uh, i mentioned the submarine fossils mm-hmm. study earlier that's another one they would they these are filled fissures of seafloor rocks so we can find cave deposits from older but they are no longer caves that yeah. we can go into caves are a great resource 
for paleontology. Being a paleontologist and working in caves comes with its set of pros and cons. One of the best benefits of doing paleontological excavation in a cave is that you work in a cave. (laughs) It's sheltered, it's enclosed. Like we were talking about stable temperature and stable humidity. You can basically always go in there. You know how you need to dress. You know what you need to bring with you. It's a pretty handy place to work. On the other hand, they can sometimes be hard to get to. Like the one that I excavated in up in the Black Hills was a 40 foot drop to get in. Yeah. And I remember they, they, I wasn't there in the early days, but they said that they used to use a ladder, which sounds terrible. We, we found a much more reasonable way to do it by hanging ourselves on a rope and then dropping ourselves slowly down 40 feet into the cave. Yeah, like a cow into the raptor enclosure. Exactly. Chilean sea bass, I believe. <laughs> there is also the whole other realm of discussion we haven't touched on here, which is that there are lots of places where you can find fossils in submerged caves, the cave diving paleontology. So Blaine, who we mentioned earlier, has done a lot of publicized work recently in a cave system in Mexico, uh, the Oyo Negro system, which is a s- caves where there is a collapse in the floor of one of the cave passages that is full of fossils. So this was a sinkhole in a cave that filled with fossils of the things that came through the cave. And now all of it is underwater. It's completely filled. The original passage, the sinkhole, accessible from sinkholes from the surface. So what they'll have divers go down for, you know, hours, just Uh. dive underground, collect fossils and come back. Like, spelunking makes me nervous enough. Cave diving, uh-huh. just, oh, just take like juggle chainsaws while you're down there. Well, I've heard Blaine say that because he Blaine is a caver. Mm-hmm. Um, he does not go into the Oyo Negro system, and he said to me, "I am a caver. I am not a cave diver. Nope. That these are very different things. Well, because because diving in and of itself is a major skill." Mm-hmm. That it takes practice and training and a, a mindset to do. Because even just diving in open water can become very dangerous very quickly yep. once you're too deep to reach it, reach the surface on one breath. Now there is no surface above you yep. because it's all stone. You have to go back through the cave. You have to backtrack to air. Ha! And I've heard about all the complications and and technical logistics they have to come up with like carrying stuff makes it harder you're using air to another uh trick in caves is that because they're so active it can be really hard to decipher the geology of a cave the taphonomy of a cave the cave that i worked in had a collection you know mound underneath the entrance but there was another old entrance that was filled in off to the side. And I remember the crew spending just days and days trying to figure out the geologic history of that entrance. You know, what happened? Because you can have collapses, you can have the flow of water into the cave can change over time. Burrowing animals can come in and disturb the sediment. It can be real hard to to decipher the geologic background of a cave. Well, it makes me think of like a, a, a 
big build, like if a mall, you know, or some other large building that was inconsistently upkept and re, re refurbished, you know, if if throughout its history maintenance was being done, but it wasn't being done consistently, so some areas might be better off than others, and then every now and then areas would be section by section or selective areas were redone and redesigned and rebuilt or additions were built on and parts were destroyed, but no one kept records. Yes. No paperwork, no paper trail, no receipts, no history. Now it's just no photos. And then you come into the mall, you know, 50 years after it was built and someone says, what did it look like originally? And then you have to go through and you have to try to figure (laughs) out, I wrote this paint, I think is the oldest paint. So this must be what it was painted like originally and this was built after this because of this and you have to try to piece together the history of this dynamic structure without any consistency or or trail yeah now on the other hand when you do get a cave system that does have a nice complete record or you can figure out the record they can be exceptional catalogs of environmental data over time awesome So not only can you get the sediments building up in the cave, not only can you get, you know, generations of guano in there, those speleothems we were talking about, right? The the cave formations laid down by successive layers of new minerals being deposited by water, all of those kinds of gradual processes can collect minerals, dust, plant remains, other organic material, And what you get is an environment that was slowly collecting pieces of the environment, sometimes for thousands of years. And so caves can be an excellent source of information if you want to know, all right, what was the Grand Canyon doing But in this 5,000-year span? And you can look at, okay, how did the plants change? How did the climate change? How did our deposition change? They can be really, really useful sources of that kind of information. Which is, it, well, it's like ice coring, but it, but you're using the deposited minerals of the cave. And that's fantastic. I love what amazing cataloging machines caves are. Yeah. They just it's collect. Nature's collections rooms. Oh, it's fantastic. We could go on about cave paleontology for a very long time. There are tons of examples we can draw from, but I'm going to cut it off here. We have talked a whole lot about caves. This was a, they're, they're so cool. Caves have so many literal layers, but just so many layers to discuss. (laughs) I had a ton of fun going, diving into the topic, uh, looking for background information. The blog post, uh, will have lots of great, uh, avenues for you to learn more. I'll find cool pictures of caves and cave fossils to put up, so be sure to check that out. I hope that people have enjoyed learning about caves as much as I enjoyed learning about caves. And of course, as always, if you want us to talk more about caves, there is so much more to say. But before we go, we have a patron question. We do! One of the things that our patrons get to do is to submit questions if you are of a, a patron of a certain level. There is a form, and you can submit questions on the form, and we will answer your questions here on the podcast. And one of the things that I uh, was remarking to Will earlier that I think is a lot of fun is that we have enough patron questions now that often we can look at the list and find questions related to the episode topic. It's a nice serendipity, serendipitous moments. Yeah. Today's question is from Kevin, who asks, 
Is limestone always made from the shells of once-living organisms, or can calcium carbonate just precipitate out of the ocean in the right circumstances? Good question. The short answer is, yes, it can just precipitate out of the ocean in the right circumstances. Longer answer, uh, limestone is a carbonate rock. We've talked about it a bunch in this episode, (laughs) but we mention it all the time. And often we will say limestone tends to form in shallow oceans where organisms in the ocean will build their shells in the case of, you know, bivalves and gastropods or skeletons in the case of corals or sponges or tests in the case of diatoms and microorganisms out of calcium carbonate. And when they die and deteriorate, they donate that calcium carbonate to the sediment in the mud at the bottom of the, on the sea floor, which can become concreted to form limestone. Limestone is a very cool rock because it can be formed by biological processes and often is and documents these very rich environments. But it can also form by calcium carbonate precipitating out of the water chemically and not biologically, inorganically. Uh, In fact, as far as I know, limestone, the shallow ocean limestone, often is a combination of biologically precipitated limestone and just calcium carbonate chemically precipitating out of the water. Yeah. That it is a combination of the two processes. Particularly, so as we mentioned earlier, when CO2 leaves the water, right, if carbon dioxide evaporates out of the water or if organisms are pulling CO2 out of the water, that can lessen the water's ability to hold on to calcium carbonate. Mm -hmm. So it can precipitate out. Uh, This can happen in the ocean. It can also happen in freshwater. So hot springs are often a place where calcium carbonate is deposited. There is a very cool phenomenon uh, called ooids, which can form oolithic limestone, which are spheres of calcium carbonate that deposit around a nucleus. So like Uh... a little grain or maybe a piece of shell and calcium carbonate calcite gets deposited on the outside of it, and then it just keeps accumulating it into these little tiny spheres. Limestone pearls. Little limestone pearls. That's awesome. And those can cement together to form oolitic limestone. I think that uh, Salt Lake in Utah has this process going on. And then, of course, caves. We mentioned earlier that speleothems, cave formations, are formed when flowing water or dripping water is redepositing calcium carbonate. Not in an organic sense, uh, but just chemically picking it up and putting it back down, forming stalagmites and stalactites and dripstones of all kinds, uh, which are often referred to as travertine, that kind of limestone. So biological limestone is considered a very important source of limestone, and I've seen some sources that suggest that at least for the Phanerozoic, you know, the last 500 million years, biological processes have been the dominant method that limestone is produced. But yeah, you can get inorganic limestone. Hot springs or in the ocean or in caves, things like that. Yeah, which makes sense that uh, if the animals are doing it, they're still doing a chemical process and... There's no inherent reason that chemical processes that happen inside an animal can't happen outside an animal. Yeah. And in caves, it's an interesting case of where 
you know, the Ordovician limestones here in Tennessee are shallow ocean limestones deposited probably mainly from organisms, calcitic shells and tests and skeletons, perhaps cemented by chemically precipitated calcium carbonate into limestone, which is then much, much later carved out by groundwater flowing through it, which redeposits the calcium carbonate into travertine in the form of you know, stalactites and stalagmites. So yeah, there's many processes of, of limestone deposition happening in within these uh, uh, caverniferous limestone regions. It's just calcium carbonate moving all throughout the, the cycles in the environment. Yes, the, the calcite cycle. Yeah. Thank you for that question, Kevin. Thank you to our requesters for requesting this fascinating topic. Thank you to our new patrons, to our old patrons, to our listeners, to all of you for listening. This has been a dense and exciting uh, life. This this is the kind of episode where the topic is deep and there are many unexplored avenues, as we mentioned before. Yep. So, as always, if you want to hear more about this topic or any other topics, send us requests, emails, social media, the usual ways. If you want to delve deeper... Check out the blog post that we will post uh, when this episode goes up, which will have links to more information as well as links to some of the sources we use to get our information for this episode. We release episodes every fortnight. Yep. Which means that two weeks from the day we release this episode, you can expect a whole other episode about a whole other topic. So stay tuned for that, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye till then. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.